The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by China. Each week, we bring you a roundup of news and a selection of full stories from Caixin, plus conversations with reporters and editors from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin and beyond. Listeners who follow China's domestic and Hong Kong stock markets closely will know that Chinese internet leader Tencent and liquor giant Maotai passed two major milestones this week, Tencent, listed in Hong Kong, became the world's 10th most valuable company, and Maotai, favorite drink for many, myself most definitely not included, became the world's most valuable liquor maker. Since China is now, by some measures, at least the world's largest economy, it's not surprising that some of its local champions have joined the ranks of the world's most valuable companies. But the recent hype around blue chips in the stock market also says a lot about investors' mentality when there is more uncertainty. Part of the uncertainty is related to the continuing anti-corruption storm in the financial market. We reported in our first Caixin Seneca business brief that the assistant chairman of the China Banking Regulatory Commission, or CBRC, Yang Jiacai, was first spotted missing from public events. It was then confirmed that he had been relieved of duties at the CBRC, and this week, the other shoe dropped. He was formally placed under investigation for graft. In addition to investigations into corruption, there's been more scrutiny on financial products and on players. The Banking Regulatory Commission is tightening up controls over loose lending, mounting bad loans, and high leverage. Since Guo Shuqing, former governor of Shandong and president of a main Chinese state-owned bank, took the reins as Banking Commission chairman three months ago, the watchdog has issued at least seven policy documents aiming at reducing systemic risks. Goa is also tough on nepotism, forbidding banks to give relatives of government officials and clients lucrative banking jobs. Regulators, for their part, are walking a tightrope between, on the one hand, reducing financial risks and, on the other, avoiding the dampening of enthusiasm for financial reforms or on innovations in what remains, in many ways, a underdeveloped financial market. The macro number to take away this week is 6.9. China's first quarter GDP number was surprisingly strong. The 6.9% year-on-year growth was built on strong manufacturing and real estate. It's significantly higher than the official GDP growth target of around 6.5% or higher, which was announced in March. 
This, coupled with a lower probability of a trade war between the U.S. and China, prompted analysts to move up their projected China GDP growth for this year. But concerns remain on how sustainable the property market is and the looming financial risks. If you're planning on watching any television over the weekend, there is an extremely popular Chinese series created by a state-owned studio with the imprimatur of the party on the current anti-corruption campaign. It's called In the Name of the People, Renming the Yi. This is a very Chinese theme, and interestingly, the show has met with some very Chinese problems. Pirated episodes were released on the internet before being officially aired. Foreign and private entertainment producers troubled by China's IP production? You are not alone. And now, a selection of important stories from Caixin Global for the week. We'll take a look at progress on China's homemade passenger jet, the C-919. We'll look at a construction milestone for the bridge spanning the Pearl River Delta. We'll hear about a father who's fighting both polluters and the regulators who failed to rein them in in a cancer village in Hebei after his two daughters were stricken with leukemia. We'll hear about a Chinese reality TV show that features letters of note read aloud that becomes a total viral hit, and Doug Young will reflect on the ordeal of getting a work visa in China. From Business and Tech, April 19th, 2017. China-made passenger jet readies for takeoff by Pancho and Yudawei. Beijing. A Chinese-designed and built large passenger jet passed expert assessment Tuesday, placing it closer to takeoff and positioning China a step forward in breaking the aviation duopoly held by Boeing Corporation and Airbus Group SE. The narrow-body C919, produced by the state-owned Commercial Aircraft Corporation of China Limited, or COMAC, passed its second high-speed taxiing test, usually deemed as the last step before a maiden flight the manufacturer reported. The company did not give a time estimate, but East Money, a financial news website, said Haitung Securities Company Limited predicted the plane would take flight before the end of 2017. An assessment panel of 25 experts from Chinese research institutes, the Civil Aviation Administration, and domestic jet makers gave unanimous approval of the C919's technical parameters and preparedness of aircraft crew and ground services in a series of tests Tuesday. On Sunday, the aircraft passed an initial high-speed taxiing trial at Shanghai Pudong International Airport after passing a major technical assessment in March. The C919 is China's first commercial single-aisle large civil aircraft with a capacity of 158 to 174 seats and a standard flight range of up to 5,555 kilometers, according to COMAC. The plane caught the attention of international civil aircraft experts after its first public showing in November 2015, leaving analysts debating whether it would compete with major international manufacturers Airbus and Boeing. China will soon be the world's biggest aviation market and a key battleground for aircraft makers, an Airbus report said in November. Airbus forecast last year that China will need nearly 6,000 new passenger aircraft and freighters from 2016 to 2035, with a total market value of $945 billion. This represents 18% of global demand over the next 20 years. A C919 prototype was delivered to COMAC's Shanghai Flight Test Center in December. The company said it had received a total of 570 orders from 23 customers, including domestic giants China Eastern Airlines Corporation Limited, China Southern Airlines Corporation Limited, and Air China Limited, and aviation financing giant GE Capital Aviation Services. 
The ARJ-21, a smaller regional jet developed by COMAC, began flights in June 2016. Let's talk to Doug Young, who edited this piece. Doug, China is building a large passenger jet. What is the story here? Well, the facts are that China is a huge buyer of airplanes, especially these big commercial aircraft. And right now, the world is basically controlled by this duopoly of Airbus and Boeing. And there are other makers of smaller aircraft, like Bombardier. But for these big commercial aircraft, Airbus and Boeing pretty much have a lock on the market. This is a huge market. Boeing and Airbus both make billions of dollars from plane sales. And and the biggest buyer of planes, these big ones right now, is is China easily because it's growing so fast and the aviation market's growing so fast. So China is saying, rather than spend billions of dollars for these foreign-produced planes, let's spend our billions of dollars here in China and buy domestically made ones that hopefully are just as good. So COMAC, China's big state-owned aerospace manufacturer, is building this plane. Is COMAC going to succeed in breaking into a market that is so dominated by Boeing and Airbus? Everyone, of course, is going to be looking at how this plane does. The big problem for big companies like COMAC and others trying to get into the space is that Boeing and Airbus have stellar safety records You know, with an airplane, safety is always the biggest concern. And then secondarily is maintenance, fuel efficiency, and so forth. And these are incredibly complex machines. And Boeing and Airbus both do it very well. So it's going to take a lot of effort for COMAC and China to break into this market. The one place COMAC may have a slight advantage is that China is the world's biggest market for aircraft right now, and nearly all of the airlines are state-owned, so they take their orders from Beijing. So COMAC has orders for several hundred of these aircraft once they finally make it into commercial production, and guess what? They're all from Chinese state-run airlines. Surprise, surprise. And these airlines really have no choice. I'm sure the management at these airlines would probably prefer not to buy these airplanes. But guess what? Someone in Beijing probably told them, you're going to buy some of these airplanes, like it or not. And it'll be very interesting to see they're basically going to be used as guinea pigs. But if the planes perform well, then this will be a, a great testing ground. On the other hand, if you know one of these planes crashes or several of them crash or they have constant maintenance problems, that's going to really get the Chinese flying public very jittery. Could be a nightmare for COMAC and perhaps these planes will never get off the ground, even if a few do get off the ground early on. Well, thanks, Doug. That's very helpful. From Economy... April 14th, 2017. $17 billion causeway linking Hong Kong, Macau, and the Chinese mainland nears Milestone. By Yang Yanwen and Yang Ge. Beijing. A $17 billion bridge that could charge up the Pearl River Delta economies of Hong Kong, Macau, and the sleepy mainland city of Zhuhai is on track to reach a major milestone later this year when the Hong Kong portion of the massive project is expected to be complete. That assessment came on Thursday from officials at the Hong Kong Highways Department, who said the Hong Kong section of the bridge linking the two special administrative regions from the scenic mainland city of Zhuhai should be complete by the end of this year. 
that could put the complex project on track to finally open by 2020 after running years behind schedule and costing well over its original budget. When it does open, the bridge could be a game changer for the region, providing a key link enabling manufacturers to move to the cheaper western side of the Pearl River Delta from their current eastern bank locations where costs are soaring in cities like Shenzhen and Dongguan. That could result in a renaissance for factories in an area that gave China its earliest moniker as Workshop of the World. This is a relatively significant bridge, said Christopher Balding, an economics professor in the HSBC Business School at Peking University Shenzhen. There are still areas where it's feasible to do low- and medium-end manufacturing in the area, but they have to be out of Shenzhen. The bridge would be a way for manufacturers to locate out of Shenzhen and still access their suppliers. In its latest update, the road authority said precast liner segments were nearly all in place for a tunnel that forms a key part of the Hong Kong part of the project and that necessary connections were made to an elevated expressway at the end of March. That led officials to say that the entire 12-kilometer Hong Kong section of the project should be linked up by the end of this month. Upon completion, the overall project will include three lanes in either direction, spanning 55 kilometers with a series of roads and bridges with artificial islands constructed at its two main terminals. Construction for the project began in 2011 and carried an original price of about $10.6 billion with a target completion date of last year. But... Delays and overruns have pushed its latest cost up to $17 billion or more, and an official from Guangdong province was quoted in 2015 saying even 2020 could be an optimistic opening date. When it finally is complete, the bridge could reduce travel times between the eastern and western sides of the Pearl River Delta from as much as four hours now to as little as a half hour. The bridge is part of a broader effort to integrate the entire Pearl River Delta area, similar to efforts now underway in the Yangtze River Delta around Shanghai and an emerging similar zone around Beijing. The planned area centered on Beijing saw a new twist last week when the central government announced a major new urban center being set up in a three-city area known as Xiong'an, about 100 kilometers south of Beijing in Hebei province. In the Pearl River Delta, the regional integration also includes building a section of high-speed rail to link up Hong Kong with China's state-of-the-art bullet train network. It also includes a commuter-style express rail link connecting the cities of Hong Kong, Shenzhen, and Guangzhou, capital of Guangdong province, which is nearing completion. Balding said, The entire Pearl River Delta area that could eventually be included in the emerging South China zone is home to as many as 75 million people bigger than most countries, and roughly equivalent to the entire population of Germany. In reality, there's a very real need to integrate all these cities, said Balding. One of the things you do see from Hong Kong and Macau is an acceptance of the economics that, look, we're increasingly tied to the mainland economically and financially. The softer issue is central leaders in Beijing want to continue to draw Hong Kong into the cultural and infrastructure orbit of the mainland. So there's hard and soft objectives they're trying to achieve here. From Environment, April 18, 2017. Fish farmer from Cancer Village seeks landmark ruling over dead daughter. By Yuan Suwen and Li Rongde. Longfang, Hebei Province. Last week's decision by a Chinese court to accept a case in which a fish farmer has taken on two polluting steel companies and the local environmental authorities who allegedly allowed them to operate has become a watershed moment in the country's environmental litigation. 
The case will determine whether citizens can sue a government environmental authority for negligence or dereliction of duty that dates back to 2003, when the country's environmental impact assessment law came into effect. Complainants are now required to file administrative lawsuits within five years. Currently, the country's administrative procedure law says plaintiffs who have been adversely affected by a government decision can bring the responsible authority to court within a five-year period after a decision is announced. And this has been a major stumbling block for farmers like Feng Jun and hundreds of other people living in China's so-called cancer villages who sue local authorities for lax oversight only when a family member falls seriously ill after being exposed to toxic pollution for years. Feng 50 has been fighting a nine-year legal battle against two steel companies, Longfang Shunhua Industry and Trading Company Limited and Hebei Dachang Jinming Accurate Cold Rolling Steel Plate Company Limited, that allegedly dumped thousands of tons of toxic waste into the Baochou River, which runs through his village of Xiadian in North China's Hebei province. Feng's crusade began after his eldest daughter, then 16, was diagnosed with leukemia in 2006. The girl died a year later. That same year, his second daughter, then 12, was diagnosed with a less malignant form of leukemia. She is still undergoing treatment. Feng filed his first court case in 2008, demanding 1 million yuan, $145,000, in compensation to cover his daughter's medical expenses, saying the girls fell ill because they drank polluted water. But both the Dachang County People's Court and Longfang Intermediate People's Court ruled against him that same year, saying he hadn't provided sufficient evidence to establish such a link. China has a long list of pollution lawsuits in which plaintiffs have been struggling to prove a connection between exposure to environmental pollution and serious illnesses. But they face an uphill battle because doctors are usually afraid to come forward to testify against big polluting companies. In some cases, state-run pollution testing laboratories controlled by local environmental bureaus have tried to hush up contamination data so that government bodies will not be seen in an unfavorable light. Feng told Caixin that the doctors who said that water pollution may have contributed to his daughter's leukemia refused to provide a written statement of their diagnosis or appear in court as witnesses. And this has deterred other families in the area, long labeled a cancer village by Chinese media, from coming forward to file lawsuits. After his first attempt to sue the two steelmakers failed in 2008 due to the lack of evidence, Feng tried again to get compensation in 2015. This time, he wanted to take to court the two local government environmental agencies in Dachang County and the city of Longfang for their alleged dereliction of duty. Feng said the two agencies had allowed the steel companies to set up shop without conducting a proper environmental impact assessment study in 2004 and 2006. One of the environmental impact assessment reports approved by the two bureaus said that there were no drinking water sources within 500 meters from a steel factory, but the family's well was just 30 meters away, said Feng, who was demanding 2 million yuan in compensation. The two environmental protection bureaus did not respond to Caixin's request for an interview. But unlike the United States, getting to court in China is a slow process. Trial courts first need to evaluate the complainant's evidence and accept a case before any hearings are held and a court refused to accept Feng's case until April 13th because the two government agencies had been arguing that they cannot be sued for a decision they made more than five years ago, the legal window given to citizens to challenge any government decisions. 
But Feng's lawyer, Li Zhang, said this five-year window to lodge administrative lawsuits against government environmental bureaus is too rigid because many people weren't even aware of the 2003 law requiring environmental impact assessments for projects until other lawsuits drew attention to it in recent years. It takes years, even decades, before one can see the health and social impact of pollution in some cases, Lee said. A silent battle. Feng said he had a fairly comfortable life before the steel plants were set up, as he was earning 30,000 to 40,000 yuan a year from his fish pond. The family's fate took a turn for the worse after two steel plants were built 30 meters from the Feng's fish pond, one in 2001 and the other in 2006. The two plants started discharging untreated wastewater into the Baoqiu River, which runs through dozens of villages, including Shadian, according to several local residents interviewed by Caixin. The two companies were ordered by the Ministry of Environmental Protection in 2013 to suspend operations pending a review after the ministry blacklisted them for severely polluting the river, according to a statement from the ministry. But the results of the review were never made public, and a Saijin reporter who visited the area found that the two companies have resumed operations. It is unclear whether they'd continue to discharge waste into the river or when they restarted operations. Representatives of the two companies declined requests for interviews. A cluster of steel mills and chemical and leather factories have mushroomed along the riverbank in the past two decades, and they have been dumping untreated industrial waste and garbage into the waterway, killing the fish and freshwater shrimp that once used to be a major part of the local diet, said Zhuofengxiang, a local farmer. Locals said that more than 30 people in the village, with about 1,000 inhabitants, were diagnosed with various cancers from 2005 to 2007. Caixin couldn't independently verify the claim through hospital records or other official data, but villagers in Shadian have been sending lists of names of the cancer patients to Chinese media for years after local officials failed to clean up the river. And this fits the pattern of cancer villages, where cancer rates are above average, that are mushrooming across China, according to environmentalists. China has at least 200 cancer villages due to severe water pollution, Wang Hao, a researcher at the state-backed China Institute of Water Resources and Hydropower Research Institute, said at a forum hosted by Jing Magazine in September 2013. This was one of the few instances where a government official has acknowledged the existence of such areas. Some small villages with about 1,000 inhabitants in Tianjin, which borders Hebei, have as many as 120 cancer patients, Wang said. After the number of people diagnosed with leukemia in Shadian started to rise in 2005, villagers complained to the local authority about the pollution in their area, Feng told Caixin. But Dachang County's Environmental Protection Bureau said at the same time that samples taken from local waterways showed that levels of arsenic, a toxic chemical linked to leukemia, was below government standards and sources of drinking water in the area. However, Fung said that he paid the county's health authority to conduct another test, and the results were completely opposite. Those results showed that the level of arsenic in water from a 40-meter-deep well next to his fish pond, where the family used to get its drinking water, was 2.4 times above the national standard, he said. The factories close to Fung's home were the only possible source of this water pollution, said Tianjing, a project programmer at Beijing-based environmental advocacy group Natural University. Ray of Hope Chinese media have compared the uphill battle facing the villagers of Shadian to that fought by residents in the world's most studied cancer cluster in Toms River, New Jersey, where two Superfund sites were located. Toms River and surrounding Dover Township made headlines when a 1995 survey found 56 instances of childhood cancer in an area with a population of 76,000 over a period of 13 years, which was above the national average. 
But a five-year, $10 million U.S. government health study that followed did not conclusively link all of the unusually high levels of childhood cancer to the pollution from these landfill sites. However, 69 families received an undisclosed amount in compensation from three chemical plants in the area in an out-of-court settlement. But unlike the families in Tom's River, who received support from environmental advocacy groups, doctors and scientists, and even the federal government, Feng and other villages of Shadian have been left to fight alone. And Feng is taking on the local government itself. China's Supreme People's Court shifted the burden of proof in environmental pollution cases to the defendant in 2001, unlike in other civil cases, but many local courts still require victims to prove that they have sustained damages or injuries due to environmental causes. A 2014 revision to the country's environmental protection law allowed non-governmental organizations, NGOs, and government prosecutors' offices to sue those causing pollution, ecological damage, and harming public interests. This was going a step further than even the laws in the United States, where a plaintiff must have suffered a, quote, specific concrete injury that is actual or imminent, unquote, to sue for environmental damages. This opened the floodgates, with courts accepting 189 public interest environmental cases, of which 60% were brought by environmental NGOs in the past two years, according to data compiled by China Dialogue, a news site focusing on green issues. It is not clear what prompted the High Court in Hebei to accept Feng's case. Feng said that the decision was a good sign, but when asked about his chances of winning, he fell into a long silence. People, April 14th, 2017. Hit TV series takes page from BBC with recycled letters. By Liu Shuangshuang and Hanwei. Beijing. We were young and fought for the future together. As a wife, I got more loneliness from him than happiness, but as his fan, I appreciated his thought-provoking films. Everything from our past shall remain my very own secret and live with me. These are excerpts of a letter penned by veteran Taiwanese pop singer Tsai Qin in 2007 after the death of her ex-husband Edward Yang, a film director. Their decade-long marriage unraveled in 1995, fueling gossip in China's yellow press that it had long been a sexless union. The letter recently went viral on Chinese social media after being read on a primetime TV show that has put the spotlight on private correspondence dating back to the Ming Dynasty. The show, known as Jianzi Rumian, a Chinese remake of the popular BBC show Letters Live, invites well-known actors to read out letters from a podium. The No Frills show became a surprise hit online with over 200 million viewers and on TV when it was aired in December. Both critics and reviewers gave it a rating of 9.3 out of 10 on popular film and book review site Doban.com. The score was a record high for a TV reality show. Another letter that shocked the audience was from a poet who murdered his wife. We met on the train. Will your mother think I am a bad man? wrote Gu Cheng a popular modern poet, in a letter shortly after his first encounter with his future bride, She Ye, on a train from Shanghai to Beijing in July 1979. No one will say you are a bad man, She replied. Trains are full of people, some good, some bad, but you are like none of them. You are a special one. Little did she know that later, the same man would axe her to death in their home in New Zealand, where the couple had lived in exile for years. Letters bring vivid stories from the past back to life. There is love, friendship, and respect in them. 
authentic emotions that are so touching in modern times full of noise, wrote one Weibo user. Television shows inspired by poetry or other forms of literature have seen a resurgence in China in recent months. Both critics and viewers have said it's a sign that Chinese audiences were getting weary of mindless entertainment shows they've been fed for years. But there's also a long and colorful history behind Chinese letter writing, and the success of the show could partly be attributed to that, others said. The earliest letters found in the country date back to the Qin Kingdom in 223 BC from two soldiers who hastily wrote farewells to their families on wooden slips. Many of China's oldest works of calligraphy were also letters, including the masterpiece Ping Fu Tie, penned 1,700 years ago by the writer Lu Ji to tell his friend about how he was recovering from an illness. One ancient letter read in the show was from a soldier who died in battle, fending off Manchu forces in 1644, the year the Ming Dynasty came to an end. The 16-year-old wrote, Every man will die. If a man dies for what is right, he will become immortal. Director Guan Wenzheng said his team had combed through archives at hundreds of museums and private collections and even dusted out molding copies stashed away in community libraries in search of letters that not only talked about love, bravery, or missing home, but also captured the zeitgeist at the time and reflected the great social changes in China. One such letter was from Yang Kaihui, Mao Zedong's second wife, who was killed by a warlord in 1930. In her missive to her cousin Yang Kaiming, a year before her death, she pleads with him to take care of her three sons. I may have already seen death. Its face is cruel and thrilling. I'm not scared, and in some sense even looking forward to it, but I feel sorry for my mother and the boys. I entrust my boys to you. They need your love to blossom like flowers in a warm spring and not to be destroyed by raving winds and storms. The letter was never posted. Yang hid it in a crack in a wall, and it wasn't discovered until a 1982 renovation of her house. Thousands of viewers have also sent their private letters to be read in the show. An individual's experiences are limited, and everyone needs to learn from others when facing uncertainties in life, Guan said. That is the purpose of reading books and even letters. But since most letters were written for private purposes rather than for publication, they contain more real information and details of the past. Although the art of letter writing is slowly dying as younger generations get hooked on smartphones, several viewers have said the language used in letters left them feeling nostalgic. An important part of my childhood was helping my mother write letters, said Zhang Guoli, a veteran actor known for his portrayal of Qing emperors. Seeing someone's writing is like meeting the person face to face. I feel it deeply, Zhang said, and his feeling has been the inspiration for the title of the show, Jian Zi Ru Mian, which means reading your letter is like meeting you in person and is a common greeting at the beginning of Chinese letters. Fan Revolt Reality TV and variety shows started appearing on Chinese TV screens in 2004 after the runaway success of Supergirl, a singing contest aired on Hunan Television. Many of them were copycat shows inspired by hits from Taiwan and other parts of the world. After authorities loosened their grip on state-backed broadcasters and pushed them to make profit in 2012, many turned to entertainment shows as a way to attract big advertisers. This also led to fierce competition among Chinese TV channels for copyrights to international hits such as The Voice, Running Man, and The Amazing Race. But there was a gaping hole left to be filled by content that reflected the history and day-to-day -day realities of life in China. The show with literary letters has tried to fill this void, revealing forgotten pieces of history to a young audience, several viewers said. 
A few letters that were widely discussed by young netizens came from the correspondence between acclaimed artist Huang Yongyu and Cao Yu, a playwright dubbed China's Shakespeare, which delved into modern Chinese literature and also provided a fine example of candid talk among friends. I don't like any of your works after 1949. None of them, wrote Huang. Your heart is not in these works, and you have lost your genius. You were hijacked by your position. Cao replied humbly, You see through people. When I feel tired or lose confidence, I will see those fierce lines in your letter which will urge me to hold my pen upright and continue to write. No one foresaw the success of the show, with analysts at video streaming sites predicting it would get little over 200,000 hits given its bland style that lacked glitzy sets and star power. However, when the first demo of the show was put out online in early December, it was viewed 400,000 times within an hour. There is a constant spiritual demand among people for content that is inspiring and meaningful and is part of one's cultural life, said Gwen. And the rise of cultural shows like Letters Alive is just a return to common sense, he said. Business and Tech, April 18th, 2017. Doing Business in China, Visas Teach Life Lessons in ABZs, by Doug Young. Beijing. This week's column takes me to the alphabet soup kingdom of visas, which have almost legendary status among anyone who has ever worked or traveled in China. Nearly everyone here has a good visa story to tell, and the plot only gets thicker when it comes to the many hoops one needs to clear for a work visa. As someone who recently went through that process anew when I changed jobs and moved from Shanghai to Beijing, I feel particularly qualified to talk on the subject. But some web surfing on the matter and discussion with our human resources expert made me realize just how complex the issue is and grateful for the many procedures that are left to true professionals. It doesn't help that in China everything seems to be constantly changing in the visa department, with the result that what was true yesterday may be completely different today. That was certainly the case when I learned that my latest application would require a criminal background check from my home country, something that definitely wasn't necessary when I moved to Shanghai in 2011. Luckily, I hadn't returned to my adopted hometown of Los Angeles and committed any crimes in that interval. Before we delve into folklore surrounding Chinese visas, it's helpful to step back and look at the big picture. It's also worth pointing out that China certainly isn't the only place that makes getting a work visa challenging, as I learned when I quizzed one of my former students about her own recent experience getting a work visa in the U.S. The bottom line in China is that there is a bumper crop of 16 visa types, and that doesn't even include diplomats who have their own status. Each type has its own letter designation, hence my alphabet soup metaphor, starting with F and then G, L, M, J, Q, S, and X, to name a few. The most important designation for most of us working here is the letter Z. And then there's also the letter M for people who travel here frequently for business. Nearly all of my foreign friends and acquaintances have their own latest visa tales that make for great lunch or dinner conversation. One told me over a recent lunch about how his passport was stolen when he was back in the U.S., forcing him to get a tourist visa, or L, to return without a huge delay. That meant he had to make a visa run to South Korea over this past weekend before re-embarking on the lengthy process of getting a new proper Z visa. Another friend recalled over a recent dinner how the process of getting visas for the new crop of foreign teachers that arrive at his university each year inevitably occasionally drives the local woman in charge of the process to the brink of tears. 
the latest wrinkle in this ever-evolving system is that China has decided to pull all of us foreigners into three categories, creating yet another alphabet soup with designations of A, B, and C. An A is reserved for rocket scientists, Nobel Prize winners, and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies who are deemed highly desirable and thus get special consideration for visas. The big majority of us are only B-grade, while the less desirable, such as the manual workers, get the C-grade. Anyone starting to feel like a piece of meat in this process would probably be justified, and it's just slightly degrading when you know that you'll end up as grade B no matter how good your credentials. That designation also seems to keep each of us confined to getting single-year visas with each renewal, although HR people continually tell me it's theoretically possible to get a multi-year. Sure, maybe after I win my first Nobel Prize. I also relearned about the document frenzy required for visas with this latest application, including the requirement of a criminal background check in addition to the older health check and academic credentials. I also learned that different cities in China appear to have different standards, since a letter from my university verifying my graduation was sufficient for my last application in Shanghai. No way, I was told in Beijing, where only my actual diplomas would do. Thanks, Mom, for digging those documents out of a box, gathering dust in the storage area of a U.S. apartment. When all was said and done, my entire process took nearly five months, which I'm told is slightly long but not that unusual. I was surprised to find the time frame for foreigners getting U.S. work visas could be even longer, as my student told me her H-1B visa, the local equivalent of our Z visa, took her around seven months. What's more, she said, many people get rejected due to the lottery system that's now used for a fixed quota of visas each year. Stories of such rejections are rare in China, with the exception of newly minted job seekers who apparently don't even meet grade C standards and are routinely filtered out if they have less than two years of work experience. In terms of documentation, the U.S. is less demanding and requires only copies of diplomas, transcripts, and the like. And there's no requirement for a background check, which is one of the most cumbersome elements for foreigners coming to China these days. At the end of the day, anyone who travels abroad to work should be prepared for a certain level of bureaucracy when applying for a visa, but China does seem a bit more demanding than other places, probably due to its natural penchant for bureaucracy and also an older system that didn't embrace outsiders until the 1980s. Of course, all rocket scientists are exempt from anything I've just said, but for the rest of us, a healthy dose of patience and a willingness to dig through old boxes, visit doctors, and get lots of notary stamps are invaluable traits when applying for a first-time work visa. That's this week's show, and thanks for joining us. And we hope you'll give us a listen every week and help spread the word. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com. I'd love to get your feedback. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories by the staff of Caixin Global. Special thanks to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Ufei for the music. Be sure to check out the Seneca Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldcorn. We are now in our eighth year and we have a terrific lineup of shows. Be sure to follow the news from China Daily at SubChina through our free email newsletter, our smartphone app, and at the website subchina.com. Take care.